0: Thank you for downloading our podcast. Please be edified through this sermon from our pulpit supply while Pastor Paul Lindemulder enjoys a week off. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Sam Gamgee asks this question to Gandalf and the Lord of the Rings. It's probably one of the most poignant questions a character has ever asked in a novel. Is everything sad going to come untrue? This is essentially the question of every story, of every worldview, of every person who has ever lived. You see, there's two answers to the question it's pretty simple yes or no. Is there hope? Or is there not? Is sadness all that we have? Do we just make the most of it? Or will we find that one day all of this sadness will be stripped away like a fog? Is there a world full of endless joy rather than endless grief? J.R.R. Tolkien wrote this essay where he discusses writing fiction or fairy stories, as he calls them. And what he says is that essentially every good story asks this question. There comes to a point in every story where tragedy strikes. We've hit rock bottom. And the question is simply this. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Will the good guys win? Will the bad guys lose? Or will sadness and evil prevail and tolkien says that we ask this question because it's exactly what we're wired for the reason that every story has a turn for the worse and then a turn again for the better is because it's wired into who we are we were made to understand that in the moment when all seems lost all can still be found And the reason for this, the reason that we're wired to think this way, is found in our text this morning. In our text this morning, we see the catastrophe to end all catastrophes. The servant, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, dies. However, in his death, the greatest miracle of all occurs. He rises again, and He saves His people. You see, Christianity depends wholly upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross to save His people from their sins. Christianity says you can't save yourself, you can't earn your way to heaven. Someone must earn heaven for you. This actually has to happen in history. This isn't some pie-in-the-sky claim. Someone must earn your salvation for you. Christ either saved us or he didn't. All of our hope depends upon that miracle. So that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to look at this grand miracle. We're going to see how God saves us through his servant. And here's how he does it. Christ the servant earns his exaltation through his suffering. So suffering and exaltation, that's the focus of this servant song. Let's look at first, Christ's suffering. Look with me at verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations so the first thing we see is the servant's immense suffering the servant has been so disfigured that he's no longer recognizable the verse says he was marred and if you look at that word that word is most often used to say that something was completely and utterly destroyed. The common image of this word is when armies would burn a city to the ground, that word, marred, is used to describe the city. The text says both his appearance and his form no longer resemble a human being. When the Old Testament talks about beauty, it uses these two words, appearance and form. Form is the shape of your body. Appearance deals with the externals, your face, your hair, how you appear. So think of how utterly, completely disfigured this servant is. It's not only his skin that's been marred, his appearance. His appearance, he's, as we see in Christ's um, narrative, he's whipped. He's bloodied. He has a crown of thorns on his head. But also his very form, the shape of his body. He's twisted and contorted in such a way that he doesn't look like a human being. So the text says, everyone who saw him was astonished. This is the reaction to God's judgment. When God judged a city and allowed it to be destroyed uninhabited and deserted, this is the reaction. People are scared, appalled, completely disgusted by what they see. And of course, this is exactly what happened to Jesus. Pilate has Jesus flogged. The Romans flogged people so brutally that people often died just from that practice itself. His back would have been completely torn up. Then they put a crown of thorns on his head, mocking him for being a king. Already at this point, Jesus' appearance was completely marred, blood everywhere, unrecognizable. And then they nailed him to a cross. He has to support himself by the nails in his hands and feet, dragging himself up the cross just so he can breathe. His shoulders, ankles, knees are all out of joints crucifixion was so brutal, so appalling, so astonishing, as Isaiah says, that the Romans were kind of embarrassed by it. They didn't write it down in many of their books. The reason that we know of crucifixion as a practice is mostly from the victims that we discovered, not from what they wrote about it themselves. So Christ the servant endures this immense, unthinkable suffering. And the text shows us why. Christ suffers because people don't believe him. Look with me at 53 verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So Isaiah says, this servant suffers because the people reject him. They despise him. Why? Why do they despise him? Well, it's because he isn't who they expect him to be. He wasn't especially handsome. He wasn't powerful. He wasn't noticeable. Think of when the Israelites picked their first king, King Saul. Think of the attributes that he was described as having. He was taller than everyone else. He was so good-looking, right? He was powerful. He was strong. He was everything a king should look like, right? Jesus was not. Jesus wasn't, didn't blow, win any beauty contests, right? He had lots of enemies who rejected him. He was more familiar with grief than with victory. For most of his life, Jesus was a blue-collar worker, living in small towns, is nomadic. He didn't live an especially impressive life. See, in these servant songs, Christ the servant comes with the power of his word rather than the power of the sword. And that's the entire problem, right? The people want a king who will conquer the Romans, kick them out, and establish them as powerful just like they were in the time of David and Solomon. Christ doesn't come to conquer armies and reign as king. He comes to sustain the weary. He comes to free the prisoners, heal the sick, and give sight to the blind. He doesn't come to save the powerful. He comes to save those who are weary, weak, and humble. That's not what Israel wanted. In fact, they crucified Jesus for being a false king. They didn't like that he came to save them from sin and death. They wanted to be saved from their political enemies. They didn't like that Jesus came to save all nations. They wanted the Messiah to rescue just Israel. God tells the servant in chapter 49, It's too light a thing to reach just Israel. I'm using you to reach the whole world. And the people say, Israel says, it's too light a thing for you to reach the whole earth. You're supposed to come just for Israel. There's one last thing to point out about the servant's rejection. Look at verse 2 again. It says, He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. See, this is a confession. Isaiah isn't saying some. Horrible people over here will reject the servant. He's including himself. He's speaking in the first person. Isaiah lived hundreds of years before Christ, and he writes in the first person, he says, I'm part of those who rejected the servant. So look, this wasn't some group of people a long time ago who rejected Christ and crucified him. This is you and me. This is everyone who Christ offered salvation to, which is the whole world. No one desires Christ on their own. On our own, we despise him, we reject him, we make our own idols to worship instead. No one is freed of the guilt of sin that put Christ on the cross. We're all included in that group we try to turn Christ into who we want him to be rather than who he actually is. Which leads us to the purpose for the suffering. Christ suffered as a sacrifice for our guilt. Look with me at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This right here is the gospel, as clear as it gets, right? Don't miss this. As Isaiah builds these servant songs up, unanswered questions keep on bubbling to the surface. How is God's justice going to go to the ends of the earth? Just by words, not conquering anyone. He's just speaking, and justice goes forth to the ends of the world. How is the servant who's weak, unimpressive, focused on the outcasts of society, going to do this? How is God going to offer salvation to the nations through this servant? Well, here it is. The servant takes our grief, our sorrows, our transgressions, and our iniquities upon himself. And notice what happens to us. We are healed. This is the great exchange, what theologians call double imputation. Right? Christ takes our sin, our punishment, And he gives us his righteousness and blessing. What a trade, right? You think of great sports team trades. This one wins, right? Best trade of all time. Our punishment, our iniquity, our sinfulness, our utter filthy rags before God, Christ takes those and gives us his righteousness and blessing in return. It's unbelievable. That's amazing. See, all of us turn to our own way. None of us earn our salvation before God. Instead, we choose our own selfish path. All of us have done wrong. We all earn God's judgment. So, what Christ does is he takes that on himself. He takes all of our guilt, all of our sins, all of our judgment upon himself, and he offers us his perfect righteousness his healing. You see, God is just. God must punish sin. Sin can't go unpunished. There has to be justice in this world, right? He can't ignore it. So Christ the servant takes our place and suffers for us. Verse 10 calls him a guilt offering. In the Old Testament, priests would regularly offer guilt offerings before God to pay for the people's sins. But Hebrews 10 shows us that these sacrifices were meaningless in and of themselves. All they did was point to Christ, the true guilt offering. Hebrews is teaching, these guilt offerings are teaching the people that a better sacrifice needs to come. God must punish sin. It must be atoned for. And your guilt offerings here are just pointing To how he's going to do it. Listen to what Hebrews says. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sits down because it's done, it's finished. He's done working. He's now resting. He's now ruling and reigning at God's right hand. Think of how many animals would have been sacrificed. Thousands upon thousands. And each time, they didn't take away sin. All they did was teach Israel how serious their sin was and how much they needed a Savior. With one sacrifice... Christ paid for the guilt of all those who believe in him. And as Hebrews says, once Christ offered himself as a sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. So let's now look at Christ's exaltation. Look with me at 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. The crazy thing about this verse is that it comes right before all of the suffering that the servant is about to experience. The next verse talks about how disfigured he is by his suffering. The servant's exaltation therefore comes through the suffering. But the servant isn't just exalted to God's right hand in his death. He's raised from the dead. Look with me at verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Now, no one that I know prolongs their days through death. Seems like a really bad strategy, right? Except Christ the servant. This is his whole mission. The servant can only save his people if he rises from the dead. You see, Christianity depends entirely upon the resurrection being true. This has to actually happen in history. In other religions where salvation depends on how good you are, it doesn't matter if the miracles are true. But if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, that means you can't rise from the dead. If Christ didn't conquer the curse of death, then you can't conquer the curse of death. If Christ is still in the tomb, then there is absolutely no hope for you. Paul agrees with this. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, the resurrection is absolutely fundamental to our hope as Christians. Jesus couldn't metaphorically conquer death, he couldn't live on in his disciples' memories. Jesus actually, literally, historically had to rise from the dead to conquer its curse. And offer that hope to us. Just like in our day, many people pressured C.S. Lewis to say that the Bible's claims of miracles are mythical, they aren't actually real. And Lewis says that works for every other religion. If you remove the miracles, you're still left with the central premise of the religion, which is do good things and get rewarded. But Lewis says this can't be true of Christianity. He writes, The Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. The Christian assertion being that it is what is beyond all space and time, what is uncreated, eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe, and rose again, bringing nature up with him. It is precisely one great miracle. If you take that away, there is nothing specifically Christian left. There may be many admirable human things which Christianity shares with all other systems in the world, but there would be nothing specifically Christian. Folks, it doesn't matter how good of a teacher Christ was if he didn't rise from the dead. It doesn't matter how compassionate, how loving or admirable he was. Lots of people try to claim this, that it's his example is what matters, not his resurrection. But this is completely untrue. If he has not been raised, our faith is futile. But brothers and sisters, the good news is precisely this. Christ has risen from the dead. He has conquered death. And because he has conquered death, He offers that salvation to you. Look with me at 53 verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That word there for be satisfied refers to someone who's hungry or thirsty, And eats or drinks his fill. You think of how intensely someone craves food if they're starving, or if they're like me and it's after church on Sundays. And then they go to eat, and that craving is satisfied. That's how Jesus feels when he thinks about those whom he's saved. The weight of sin is upon his shoulders. He suffered the most gruesome, torturous death possible. He feels God's wrath, God's justice for that sin while on the cross. But when he thinks of how he saved you and me, he thinks that it's all worth it. He's satisfied. Think of all that Christ has endured up to death itself. He says it's all worth it because of how much I love you. He loves you so much that it comforts him to know that he suffered in your place, so that you could enjoy his perfect standing before God. See, this whole section of Isaiah is written to those who are in exile. They think that God has forgotten them. They think that God doesn't care or love them. So in Isaiah 49, right after the second servant song, God responds to this claim. He's been making all these promises that he will save them, that he will free them from exile. But these exiled folks don't believe him. They think he's pulling their leg. So here's what God says. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Hopefully all of you moms out there say, no, that's absolutely impossible. My child is physically attached to me. I can't forget them. If you're a parent, you love your children so much that you would sacrifice anything for them. Anything bad happens to them? They get, they're at school and they're crying, right? And they come home, and they tell you what happened. You just wish that you could have taken that instead of them, right? You would show them the type of love that Christ shows us. But God continues, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God says, I love you more than a mother loves her baby. You think that's absurd, right? It's crazy, impossible. But that's exactly what Christ demonstrated. You see, Christ didn't die for people who love him, for cute little babies who fill your heart with joy every time they smile. Christ died for people who hated him, who nailed him to the cross, who rejected and despised him. It's easy to make sacrifices for your children, but Christ loves his enemies with an even greater love than parents love their kids. And because of that, he makes you righteous. He makes you able to stand before God completely blameless. And beyond that, his perfect record of completely and perfectly following God's law is given to you. So what happens if you have faith in him, if you accept Christ's righteousness as yours? Look at verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What this verse says is that you get Christ's victory spoils. As a good king shares his spoils with his citizens, Christ shares his victory with you. Because he conquered death, you will conquer death. Because he took away your sin, you will be made perfect. Intercession seems, sounds pretty fancy, but that word there just means that Christ looks after you. He represents you. He prays for you. He defends you. He makes sure that you're okay. He makes sure that you get everything he won for you. You won't miss out on his victory. Even though you and I are transgressors, Christ did all of this for us. So that's the Christian religion. That's our message. That's our hope. So, as we close this morning, I want to ask you Is this hope yours? Will Christ share the riches of heaven with you? Will you live in the world where there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears? Will God Himself wipe away every tear from your eye? All of the hopes, the idols that we make, crumble in the end, they are nothing. And if we follow them, we become nothing. Do you have this true, lasting hope? That's what Jesus lived, suffered, died, and rose to give you. Let's pray. Thank you for subscribing and listening to our podcast. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.